0: Uh, would you turn with me to Romans 15 verse 4, Romans 15 verse four, for our text today. Ah, oh, this is going to be a fun day. Are you guys ready? The stats are crazy, as you heard in this video, like, we as Americans consume more pills due to anxiety and depression than the rest of the earth combined by three times over? Sociologists now tell us that Gen Z, Gen Y, millennials post-millennials, centennials, we are now the most depressed generation in history on record. Antidepressants are now the number one, another study said number two, best-selling prescribed pharmaceutical prescription medication. We live in a nation that is built on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and yet we're stressed, depressed, distressed, and in deep debt over a trillion dollars that we owe to China. In fact, uh, did you know there are more suicides than homicides in our country today? So a big movie on Netflix is that Ted Bundy film playing Zac Efron, which makes a lot of people, played by Zac Efron, which made a lot of people scared, like, what if I get killed by a homicidal maniac? Well, statistically, you're more of a danger to yourself than any serial killer out there. In fact, there is one suicide every 40 seconds around the globe. There are 123 suicides a day just in America alone. Did you know, this is crazy, that since the year 1999, the suicide rate has increased by 33%, which means over the last 20 years, the suicide rate has augmented so drastically that now an extra one out of three people will kill themselves compared to 20 years ago. We live in such a depressed generation and somebody's gotta do something about this. Here's the reality. There are medical scientists trying to cure cancer. There are social activists trying to cure HIV AIDS. We need some sacred optimists, optimists who are gonna fight the disease of suicide because suicide is now one of the top 10 leading causes of death. <laughs> did you know, watch this, did you know that research is now stating that if you live in a trailer park, You have better creature comforts, better amenities. You actually live better and more comfortably and luxuriously than kings in medieval times. So you, even if you're on the lower end of the socioeconomic and and environmental scale, a lower rung of that ladder of corporate, even if you seem to have downward mobility, you live better than kings used to live. We, We live in a generation that has means, but no meaning. We have enough to live by, but not enough to live for. So I want to encourage you, if you're here today and you're like, Ben, I'm going through depression, we're going to try to see if we can get you out of this in the next 40 minutes. Let's see what happens. You say, no, Ben, hashtag the struggle is real. Hashtag the struggle is real, but so is God. God. Life is tough, but God is tougher. Life is a battle, but the battle is the Lord's. And no one ever injured their eyesight by looking on the bright side, the light of the world. So we're not gonna complain because rose bushes have thorns. We're gonna rejoice because thorn bushes have roses. We're gonna do all things without complaining, as Philippians says, because we know that our hope is not dictated by our circumstances. Rather, our circumstances will always be dictated by our hope because Christ within us is the hope of glory. So our past supply is not our last supply. The more desperate the case, the more space for God's grace. God's love is the coal that makes the train roll. So we're going to be strong when everything's going wrong. We're going to hope and cope. It's okay if you're not okay. It's just not okay if you stay that way because everything's going to be okay in the end. So if it's not okay, it's not the end. And as Peter said, we're not going to be surprised by our fiery tribulations because our fiery trials do not burn us. They forge us because God is a consuming fire who never burns what we are. He only burns what we are not. And on our worst day with God, we're better off than on our best day without God. And we don't have to behave to get saved. We just just believe and receive because we can't do enough good things to get God. We can't do enough bad things to lose God. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy will come in the morning. If we sow in tears, we will reap in joy. He turns our sorrow into joy. Hashtag no big deal, low-key world domination. If we're on this planet, this mode of dust hurtling through his sunbeam, scientifically and astronomically at 67,000 miles per hour, then we might as well change this globe while we're here. Can I get an amen? Come on. If we're here, like this thing is not a playground, it's a battleground, it's not a cruise ship, it's a battleship. Like we're here to wage war. We don't need people's pity. We need the Prince of Peace's power. The psalmist said, I have poured all my complaint before God. You can complain to people and get their pity or you can offer your complaint to God and you'll get his power. Because neuroscience and research is now showing us that when you talk to God about your hopes, your fears, and your dreams, it has the same effect neurologically on your brain and psychologically as therapy. How sick is that? When you talk to God about your hopes, your fears, and your dreams, it has the same effect on your brain as therapy. And here's the thing it's free. And you know what else is cool? There's no like, oh, you have Freudian issues and Oedipus complex and psychological daddy issues. Isaiah says, our Lord is a wonderful counselor. Now we need Christian counselors and wise psychologists, but sometimes you can go to psychologists who are not so great. I remember I went to a psychologist once in He was like just quoting the book at me. He referred to me as Little Ben. I'm like, what is this? Like Adler, Freud, Victor Frank. Like what what part of the book are you gonna quote at me? Sometimes you just feel like you're like a target or a mark or an object rather than an actual person. There are good psychologists out there. Uh, But the fact of the matter is when you go to God, the reality is Isaiah says he is a wonderful counselor and his therapy is free. So we need to be a group of people who go to God to get his power rather than people to get their pity. We need people who are warriors. It's so interesting. After Job suffered, you know all the stuff Job went through. It was nine months of suffering, but then he enjoyed his great grandkids and double for his trouble after his trouble doubled for 140 years. When God showed up to Job out of a whirlwind, he spoke out of a whirlwind. Why? Because at the beginning of the story, a whirlwind killed Job's kids. So at the end of the story, God spoke out of a whirlwind. Why? Because in the place we suffer most painfully, that's often where God speaks to us the most powerfully. And when God spoke to Job, he said, gird yourself up like a man and you shall answer me. Now I would think God would say, oh, Joby, poor baby. But he said, gird your loins up like a man. I'm going to question you. In other words, maybe when we go through suffering, We don't just need sympathy or pity parties. Maybe what we need is to hear the captain of our salvation command us like soldiers to endure hardship, as Paul told Timothy, as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Because Exodus 15, 3 says, our Lord is a warrior. He's a man of war. He's fighting battles on our behalf. He's answering prayers at our behest. So sometimes we have to fight for what we don't feel. Sometimes we have to count it all joy, even when we're going through bad stuff. Sometimes we have to say, "Not why does bad stuff happen to good people? But what happens when good people happen to bad things? We need people who are going to embark on a journey of hope, who are going to see this sacred optimism as an adventure. The truth of the matter is Antonio Damasio, a neuroscientist, states that 95% of the time, it's our feelings that decide for us. So research shows that we will opt for what feels easy or it feels good now for instant gratification rather than delaying what feels easy or feels good now for what will be advantageous or beneficial in the long run. In other words, our feelings often dictate our actions. Instead, we shouldn't walk by feelings. We should walk by faith. We need the discipline of soldiers animated by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need like Navy SEAL Team 6, MI5, Deathcon 1, Marine, Recon, paratroopers. Like we need Delta Force, Chris Kyle, Marcus Luttrell, American Sniper vibes, Elite, Crame De La Crame. We need people who are going to rise up as soldiers, go hunt some demons, give a good judo kick to Satan's trachea, and throw punch the devil. So that's what we're going to attempt to do. Uh, but before we get into our text, though, I do want to give a little biblical preface. If it's the last thing I do with my dying breath, I want to see this mope generation become a hope generation. Like if it's the last thing I do, I want to fight for this thing. Because I went through 10 years of chronic depression where I was suicidal, that's why I'm so passionate about it. I believe our scars become our stars, that our wounds become our wisdom, that we don't just have to say, hear my words, we can say, touch my wounds. People are impressed by our accomplishments, but they connect with our weaknesses. And the scars we share become lighthouses for others who are headed toward the same rocks we hit. And just so you know, like I'm not up here just saying, don't worry, be happy, let me give you a tiger on steroids kind of message. What I'm saying is this message of hope was forged from the fire. I went through 10 years of chronic depression where I was suicidal, where I even took up a knife to kill myself, and the Lord mercifully stayed my hand. Two months ago, my brother died of colon cancer, and we worked together and taught together at our home church. When I was a kid, my sister died in a car accident. A few years ago, I went through a romantic heartbreak that made me think I'd never be happy again. My dad's first wife died in a car accident. I think people think in Calvary Chapel circles, like the Corson family, our family has like what the Kennedy curse had in politics. We have on our family because it just seems like we're tested in almost every way. And so, people say like, "Why are you so hopeful after that stuff?" It's very simple. When you go through a certain amount of trauma, the path bifurcates you're either gonna retreat into yourself, withdraw into yourself, succumb to despair and give up, or you're gonna make the darkness pay. This is my mindset right now. Enemy, principalities, powers, spiritual wickedness in high places, you wanna attack my family, good luck, here we come. There comes a time where you take up the armor of light and you fight. You fight like a madman and you say, I'm going to war. We need people not who are going to, oh, I'm so depressed. Let me just lie in the ashes. We need people who are going to rise like a phoenix from the ashes and say, I will be strong. Just because I'm going through hell does not mean I have to smell like smoke. We are the people who are hope dealers in a generation filled with dope dealers who are going to be strong because we're, we're god that wrong will be worsted, right will triumph. We are baffled to fight better. We sleep to wake, we fall to rise. We might have hell around us, but we have the kingdom of heaven inside us. We're the people who've gone through hell carrying buckets of water for those still consumed by the fire. And if we're going through the valley of the shadow of death, green pastures and still waters are a-coming. If you're going through hell, keep going. Let's make the darkness pay. That's what we're going to do. And let me tell you, if you struggle with depression, like biblically, that is not a sign of weakness. We have to talk about mental illness and destigmatize the taboo of depression because a lot of people think if you're depressed, that's because you're not holy enough. That's because you need to get closer to God. The truth of the matter is some of the best Bible characters suffered from depression. Look at Elijah. Elijah was so great that on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus had his inner glow manifested, his glory revealed, he was flanked, by Moses and Elijah. Moses represented the law. Elijah was the greatest prophet. Why? Because Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. Elijah was such a great prophet that he, would like, he could like raise a kid from the dead. And in payment for this, a widow showed him great kindness when Elijah like could raise her, raise her son from the dead. This widow offered Elijah a widow's chamber prophet's chamber, pardon me, and he would stay in this widow's house at the prophet's chamber when he was on his itinerant preaching journeys. And when Elijah was hungry, he was so powerful that like ravens would feed him. How sick would that be? The Bible says ravens fed him. Like instead of dialing Domino's pizza or Uber Eats, it's just like ravens are dropping in and out animal style fries in your mouth. It's like, this tastes like hope feels. It tastes like love without the fear of love's dissolution. This is amazing food, raven food. Elijah's just strong in faith. At the pinnacle of his prosperity, powerful, widow sustains him, ravens feed him. Then he goes up against 850 prophets of Baal in the groves, calls down Dragon Ball Z like fireballs from heaven. And then what happens? An angry woman named Jezebel sent him running for his life. He could face a whole nation. He could face 850 prophets of Baal in the groves by himself, but one angry woman sent him running for his life. And it says he outran a chariot. Like, I'd like to see that. Here's this bald, hairy prophet who's like girding up his Jewish skirt and outrunning a chariot. Like, he was really scared of Jezebel. And he ran into a cave next to a broom tree or a juniper tree. And he got so depressed because of this woman, Jezebel, that he, he, said, he said he asked the Lord, would you kill me? Like, like, please kill me. Take my life. I'm no better than my father's. Everyone's bowed the knee to Baal. And the Lord said, when Elijah was in his cave, so depressed that he was suicidal, he wanted to die. I love what God said. What are you doing here? <laughs> when you're in your man cave and you have the blinds drawn, maybe the Lord would say, what are you doing here? And you know what the Lord did? He put him to sleep, sent angels to give him food, And spoke to him. Listen, there are very few things that a good nap, a good meal, and a nice talking to God won't solve. So he takes a nap. That's what God does. Like instead of this complex intervention, he puts Elijah to sleep, gives him a nap, sends Angel to give him food, and, and sustains him and speaks to him. Watch. When Elijah was at the pinnacle of his prosperity, he's strong in faith. A widow sustains him, and ravens feed him. But when he's in his darkest day of doom and despair and depression, despondent, distressed, in the cave, God doesn't just send ravens to feed him. This time, God sends angels to feed him. Now, I don't know what that would have... What kind of food they cooked up, but it must have been angel food cake or something. But these angels are feeding Elijah... And now it's no longer a widow that's sustaining him. God himself is sustaining him. So you know in Genesis 22, when God called himself Jehovah Jireh, the word Jireh means provides or provision. God is our provision. Just like when, you know, if you're good at basketball, you're like, LeBron's my middle name. God's like, providing's my middle name. I'm Jehovah Jireh, I'm the God who provides. Yeah, I'll provide ravens and a widow when you're strong in faith, but when you're deep in doubt, I'm gonna up my provision to 2.0. This is provision updated, provision 2.0. And now I'm going to not send ravens to feed you. I'm going to send angels to feed you. am not going to send a widow to sustain you. I myself will sustain you. Because sometimes God's provision kicks up into 2.0. Not when we're strong in faith, but when we're in dark depression. And so too, I want to encourage you. If you're depressed, so was Elijah. It's not a sign of weakness, he was the greatest prophet. Look at Job. Job was the godliest and greatest man in the east. The Bible says, "What Kawhi Leonard is to the Eastern Conference, Le, uh, Job was to the Eastern world." He was the greatest man, the godliest man in, in the world, and you know in the east. And you know what the Bible says? Job said, "I abhor myself." This guy needed some self esteem classes. He said, "I abhor myself." He said, "I curse the day I was born." In fact. I wish I was a stillborn, said Job, godliest man in the east. You look at David. David had to encourage himself in the Lord when his wives and his possessions were stolen from him and his mighty men. His mighty men took up rocks to stone David. They were so upset at their general. It says David encouraged himself in the Lord. Why? Because David was like bipolar. He would actually foam at the mouth at one point in Ziklag when he was with the Philistines, like foaming at the mouth. He was like, God, I praise you with this. Liar and the harp. And then the next one, he's like, if you don't save me, I'm going down into a pit. He was like bipolar, cyclothymia, dysthymia, hyperthymia, ADD, ADHD, SAD, whatever. Metaphors apply. Pick your poison. It's like David suffered from depression. He said, my sins and problems are more in number than the hairs of my head. David struggled with depression. Psalm 42 and 43. Three times in two chapters, he repeats this one refrain. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul, said the psalmist, hope in God. So the psalmist, we don't know who the author was. The Bible doesn't tell us. But the author said, why are you cast down, O oh my soul? He had a soul that was cast down. Do you ever feel like you can't figure out why you're depressed? That's where the psalmist was. He's like, I don't know why. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Look at Psalm 88. He-Man? He-Man wrote the darkest chapter in the Bible. Psalm 88 doesn't have one glimmer of hope. It's the only psalm in the 150 psalms. And Scholars tell us 50% of the psalms are laments. But the only psalm that has not one verse of hope is Psalm 88. And it's He-Man. And He-Man, who was a mighty man of God, he ended his psalm with the word darkness. He suffered from the darkness. Jonah, he was like, John Wesley, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Finney, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham. This guy was an incredible revivalist. He led the greatest spiritual awakening in the Old Testament. The entire city of Nineveh came to faith. Jonah leads this revival, and then he goes and hides under a plant to get asylum from the scorching sun. And a little worm eats his gourd, eats his plant. And he says, God, I want to die. My plant died. Sometimes when you're depressed, you're just not thinking clearly. He's like, my plant died. I want to die. This is worthy of a death request. Jonah wanted to die. And he was the greatest revivalist in Old Testament history. Peter said to Jesus, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. That's how unworthy he felt. Paul the apostle, at the beginning of his ministry, he said, I'm the least of the apostles. Later on in his ministry, he writes, I'm the least of the saints. But by the end of his ministry... It gets even worse. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. Like, the older he got, the more unworthy he felt. Jesus himself in the garden of Gethsemane said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Was Jesus weak? Was Job weak? Was Peter weak? Was Paul weak? Was Jonah weak? Was Elijah weak? Was He-Man weak? Was the psalmist weak? no. We have to destigmatize the taboo of depression. And if somebody's laid a guilt trip on you because you've suffered from depression, you have ammo now. <laughs> we gotta destigmatize the taboo. It's not a sign of weakness to be depressed. On the other hand, I'm watching a certain group of people, hipsters in Christendom today, who are saying, Yeah, I'm gonna be a spiritual martyr. I'm just going to, here's like a catchphrase right now I'm just going to live with depression. I said, that's a bunch of bunk. Why would you live with depression? We were called to defeat depression. Like, like we fight this thing. The psalmist didn't say, why are you cast down on my soul? Keep at it. He didn't say, why are you cast down on my soul? This is awesome. He didn't say, why are you cast down on my soul? Good job. He said, why are you cast down on my soul? Hope in God. You know what that word hope in Hebrew is, in the etymological original language? When the psalmist says, for example, Psalm 119, in thy word do I hope? The word hope in Hebrew refers to being knitted. Everyone say knitted. Knitted. So it's not loosey-goosey, it's knitted to ultimate reality, the source, the prime mover, the principle behind which you cannot go, that which has no beginning, God himself, the creator of the initial singularity, whatever name you want to use for the divine. God himself has this hope intrinsically and inherently within his deity and Godhead. And so when I have hope in God, it is knitted to ultimate reality. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says it's an anchor for the soul. It doesn't unravel when my circumstances do. It is knitted to ultimate reality. It is anchored to the rock of ages who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yes, the vicissitudes of life will change. And yes, we'll go through the the highs and the lows. We'll go through the times where we're great in faith and a widow sustains us and ravens feed us. We'll go through deep dark nights of doubt when God himself sustains us and angels feed us provision 2.0 but through it all life is like a roller coaster you have your ups and downs but it's up to you whether you scream or enjoy the ride whether you're going to be the guy on splash mountain who has your face frozen into a mask of itself utter terror and you see your picture after the ride or whether you throw up your hands and you say I'm going to lift my heart with my hands as lamentation says I'm going to hope in God because my sacred optimism my Jesus joy my holy happiness is not rooted in the circumstances of this life. It is knitted to ultimate reality so it cannot unravel even when my circumstances do, which is why Jesus said, I give you a joy that no man takes from you. Here's the reality. We need a generation of warriors who are gonna rise up and fight against depression. It's not a sin to struggle with depression, nor are we gonna live with depression. We're gonna defeat depression. We're gonna fight against this thing. And listen, if it's the last thing I do with my dying breath, I wanna fight for this hope message. A lot of you here, you don't have hope because you think you can't have any sort of interpersonal relationship knitted into the warp and weft of ultimate reality because there's no way God could love you. I've been there. Sometimes we feel like we're damaged goods, that God couldn't love us. But you know what's interesting? You know, I said at Elijah's height of ministry, it was good provision, but in his deeps of doubt, the provision got even greater. The same is true in Jesus' life. Watch this. This is sick. When Jesus was baptized, he was baptized. I haven't told any of the services this yet. When he was baptized, he was baptized in the Jordan River. Do you know where the Jordan River is geographically? It's right next to the Dead Sea. Do you know what the Dead Sea is? It is the lowest point on the surface of planet Earth topographically. You cannot go lower on the surface of planet Earth than the Dead Sea. That's where Jesus was baptized. Adjacent to the Dead Sea was the Jordan where Jesus was baptized. Lowest point on planet Earth when he was 30 and he hadn't done any miracle. Fast forward. Later on in the book of Matthew, Jesus is transfigured. The law and the prophets. Moses, Elijah flanking him to his right and his left. He's on the Mount of Transfiguration. Scholars believe it was either Tabor or Mount Hermon. Now, the interesting thing about Mount Hermon is geographically and geologically, it is the tallest mountain, the tallest peak, and the tallest point in all of Israel topographically. You cannot get higher in Israel than being on Mount Hermon. And Jesus was already walking on water. He was feeding 5,000 people with his Lunchable. He was like doing miracles left and right. And he's at the pinnacle of his prosperity and he's transfigured. But what do both these stories have in common? When he was baptized, hadn't done any miracle that's recorded. On Mount Hermon, he was at the top of his game, transfigured. One was the deepest valley. One was the tallest height. If you look at the map, what do they both have in common? In both of those situations, what did Jesus hear from his father in the heavens? The father said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Same phrase. He didn't change his approval based on Jesus' performance. Hey, you're my beloved son in whom I am well pleased before you've ever done a miracle when you're in your deepest valley next to the Dead Sea. But also, you're my beloved son when you're at the pinnacle of prosperity and you're being transfigured. Either way, tallest mountain Hermon, lowest valley, Dead Sea, Jordan River, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is where it gets good. Paul the Apostle said, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Our hope is in the fact that the Father is pleased with the Christ in us, whether we're at our peak performance or going through our deepest valley. Come on, somebody. When it says Christ in you is the hope of glory... This Christ is in you, and the Father says, you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased when you're at your peak performance or lowest valley. The word glory in Greek is Shekinah, and it refers to just weights in the marketplace, so it means weight. It can also mean excellence. The word Shekinah also means dwelling, meaning this hope is dwelling in you whether you feel it or not. The Father is pleased with the Christ in you, and that's your hope, which leads us to Romans 15, verse 4. Look at this text. Wow, I did not plan to say a lot of that, but we did, so let's just go. Romans 15, verse four, when it comes to hermeneutics and teleology, I know we've done a lot of biblical preface in biblical work, but I want to really harness it into a focus energy to make this study indomitable when we look at verse four, because Paul will tell us one of the most important things when it comes to the teleologic hermeneutics of why the scripture was written. Watch this. Romans fifteen four, Paul says, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning." that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have, say it out loud, hope. It's one thing if a pastor tells you why the Bible is written. It's one thing if a blogger speculates as to why the Bible is written. It's one thing if a theologian postulates his theory as to why the Bible is written. But I'd rather go to the horse's mouth and Paul tell me why he wrote the Bible autobiographically. He says, the scriptures were written that through the patience and comfort of its reading, we might have hope. That's what Paul says. The Bible was written to give you hope. Meaning, if we walk away from a Bible study with less hope rather than more hope, it is a giant exercise in missing the point. If you walk away from a Bible study built up because of your failure, rather than what Jude says being built up in your most holy faith, if you feel Beat up because of your failure rather than built up in your most holy faith. If you get mope rather than hope, if you get blues rather than gospel good news, it's a giant exercise in reading it wrong. Paul says the scriptures were written to give you hope. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible, 66 books written by 40 different authors, 14 of which were written by Paul. And he often wrote these books from prison because he got canned more than tuna. And even still, Paul says, the scriptures were written to give you hope. We have enough blues. We need more good news. We have enough Eeyores. We need some more Tiggers. We have enough people who tell it like it is. We need some more people who tell it like it can be. We have enough people who tell us you're gonna die soon. We need some more people who tell us you ain't dead yet. You are not a carbon footprint. You're a force to be reckoned with. You are not an orphan. You are a child of the most high God. You're not just swirling protons of materialism you are a pronoun made by your maker. The Bible shows you your identity, that you are a child of the most high God. So this Christ in us is the hope of glory and the scriptures, when we read them aright, will give us a knitted relationship with the divine. Wow. You know what's interesting? How are you guys doing so far? Are you doing Okay. You know, it's interesting, little freebie here. Paul tells Timothy that the scriptures are God-breathed. Some translations render that inspired, but in Greek, the etymological origins trace their genesis to this idea, God-breathed. It literally means the scriptures are God-breathed. And I love that. These God-breathed scriptures should give us hope, Paul tells us in Romans 15, 4. God breathed. You know what's interesting? The word spirit and breath. These are God breathed scriptures that give us hope. The word spirit and breath in every major language are the same. So like in Hebrew, it's ruach. The spirit of God hovered on the waters when the earth was without form and void. The New Testament, it's the word pneuma, which can mean spirit or breath. Either way, you can translate it either way. So like, remember in John 20, when Jesus gives his disciples the spirit, how does he do so? He breathes on them. Why? Why does he breathe on them to give them the spirit? It's because of the name of God. The name of God in the Old Testament was YHWH. We pronounce it Yahweh, but that's actually not even the correct way to say it. The, the, the consonants YHWH have no vowels because the ancient rabbis tell us that the, the consonants YHWH are the only consonants that when pronounced correctly, you can't use your tongue nor can you speak it with your lips closed because the rabbis tell us the name of God was meant to imitate and replicate breath. So the name of God wasn't even, we're going to go deep for a second, so hang with me. The name of God wasn't something you were supposed to speak. In fact, one of the commandments was, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It doesn't just mean don't use Jesus' name as a curse word. What it actually means in Hebrew is don't carry the name of the Lord in vain. So they wouldn't even say the name of God oftentimes, some of the Orthodox Jews, because it's called the ineffable tetragrammaton in theological syntax and rhetoric. It means you can't speak the name of God. You can only breathe the name of God. So the rabbis tell us the consonants YHWH were meant and written for the purpose of imitating and replicating breath. So the name of God was never something you really spoke. It was something you breathed. So it would sound like this. yah way, And that's actually the pronounced way to, to, to uh, articulate the name of God. You didn't say it, you breathed it. Why did God change Abram's name to Abra- why did he change the name of Sarai to ser He was putting the breath of his very identity into their, into their, into their new name. So you wonder, like, what's, what's the last words you're ever going to speak? Is it going to be like Steve Jobs? Oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow? <laughs> no, the last word you're going to speak is yeah. And then you give up the ghost. Maybe you die... Not when you stop breathing. Maybe you die when you can no longer say the name of God. The first word you ever spoke out of your mother's womb was the very name of God. In him we live and breathe and have our being. Acts 20, Paul said to the Areopagus, Athenian metaphysicians at Mars Hill. Paul said godliness with contentment is great gain. In Greek, the phrase is literally used of a, of a child in the arms of a daddy who's giving a little cute exhale. Yahweh. That's the, I, the literal word picture in Greek when Paul says godliness with contentment is great gain. His are the everlasting arms. He is Abba Father, Galatians 4, 6, and he prays through us with breaths that cannot be uttered, Romans 8, with sighs and groanings. Yahweh. on these scriptures, breathed on the scriptures, gave it life and hope. Look at verse 13. What is the New Testament name of Yahweh? At least one of them, this title for God. Paul says, now may the God of, say it out loud, hope. hope. So Yahweh is the God of hope. He breathes on the scriptures to give us hope. So when you ask, listen to me. When you ask, where is God when my heart is hurting. That's like asking, what shape is yellow? It's the wrong category. The question is not, where is God? The question is, where isn't he? Where can I flee from his ruach? If I send up to heaven, he's there. If I dwell in the uttermost deeps of the sea, he is there. If I take the wings of the morning, or dwell in Sheol. Behold his spirit, his Ruah. Yahweh. Where can I flee? He's my, my very breath of life. God breathed into Adam and made him a living being. Job said the breath of the Almighty gives us life. God is as near to you as your very breath. You just need an awareness. Listen, you just need an awareness of his nearness. He's here, near, and dear. But you can't see the world clearly when your eyes are blurred by tears. And when statistically we pull out our phone once every six minutes, 150 times per day, produces the same dopamine loop that gambling produces. That's why we're addicted to it. When you stop and you breathe, God, you're near to me. You know what the Bible says? God is so near to you. He's not only as near to you as your very breath. Psalm says that he is near to the brokenhearted. And you know what's interesting about that text when it says that God is near to the brokenhearted in Psalms, did you know that's the first time in all of history and ancient literature of antiquity that the phrase, a broken heart, was ever used? Which means the Bible was the first book to use the phrase, a broken heart. The Bible invented that phrase, a broken heart. And Jesus said in Luke four eighteen, quoting Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to heal broken hearts. Listen, we will go through pain. We might wonder where God is but God is as near to you as your very breath and not all things are good, but all things work together for the good because truly God is good and pain makes you stronger and tears make you braver and heartbreak makes you wiser and one day you're going to thank your past for a better future. Paul said we glory in tribulation because tribulation produces patience, patience, experience, experience, hope and hope never make it the shame because of the love of God spread abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Yeah which is given unto us. So we have hope. It's funny. Did you know, uh, you know what the word, so we talked about the Hebrew meaning of hope in the Bible. It means knitted. But do you know what the New Testament word for hope is in Greek? It's the word elpis. It means joyful, confident, welcome. Would everyone say that? Joyful. Everyone say this after me. Joyful. Confident. Welcome. So hope is the joyful confidence whereby we welcome the miracles of God into our life. Listen, hope is joyful. We have enough Christians who look like they got baptized in lemon juice. We have enough Christians who look like they got baptized in prune juice. Like, we need more. You know what the Bible says? Psalm 2 verse 4, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Psalm 37 says, when the wicked gnash their teeth against the just and plot against them, the Lord laughs. What does that mean? When you have enemies, God thinks it's funny because he knows he's betting on a fixed fight. He's like, that's hilarious. God's like, I don't take you deeper to drown you. I just know your enemies can't swim. See the Egyptian charioteers for more details. (laughs) Oh, Ben, but people are talking about me behind my back. They're behind you for a reason. Your haters are your motivators and tigers don't lose sleep over the opinion of sheep. People are not your dictionary. They don't define you. God laughs when you have enemies who plot against you. He actually thinks it's funny. So God laughs. So too, the virtuous woman laughs in Proverbs 31. It says, the virtuous woman laughs without fear of the future. I use that verse for myself, even though I'm taking it out of context. I'm not a virtuous woman, but I like the verse. (laughs) Laughing without fear of the future. Psalm 126 verse 2 says, Then was her mouth filled with laughter, for they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things. Uh, the book of Proverbs says a merry heart does good like medicine. Do you know science is now confirming that? That when you laugh, you release neuropeptides in your body, which strengthens your immune system, which is why the more you laugh, the more you extend your life expectancy, whereas depressed people get colds more frequently than non-depressed people. Because when you laugh, releasing these neuropeptides in your body, fortifying your immune system, what happens is science shows us that when you laugh 100 times, it has the same effect on your body as being on a rowing machine for 10 minutes or a stationary bike for 15 50- 15 minutes. So if you want better abs, laugh at my jokes. Just saying. (laughs) I remember a few years ago, me and my friends were filming for a TV show in France and we were doing these front flips and back flips off this dilapidated building into the ocean. Uh, I got tired after a little bit. So I was like laying in the sand under an umbrella and my friend Sean comes out of the ocean and he's cracking up and he's limping. I'm like, Sean, why are you limping? And why are you laughing? And Sean said, because I just got stung by a jellyfish. True story. I'm like, Sean, why are you laughing? This, you could die. He's like, well, if I have an hour left to live, I might as well enjoy the rest of my life. And you know what? An hour later, he was totally okay. A merry heart did good like medicine. Here's the reality. The average kid laughs 200 to 400 times every day. The average adult laughs 13 to 17 times every day. Now, I'm Ben Corson, not Ben Carson. I'm not a rocket scientist or a neurosurgeon. I have as many uh, IQ points as the Cleveland Browns put on the scoreboard. It's just bad news bears. I don't have an alphabet after my name. I don't have as many degrees as a thermometer. The truth of the matter is I got a 2.0 grade point average. My teachers didn't know how to teach a creative genius. Anyway, (laughs) no, but it's true about the 2.0. The thing is, it does take a rocket scientist to realize that if kids are laughing hundreds of times every day and we're only laughing 15 or so times a day, maybe Jesus was on to something when he said, if you want to enter my kingdom, which Paul defined, among other things, as joy in the Holy Ghost, you must become like a child. Joy. Number two, confident. Everyone say confident. Have you ever read Kanye West tweets? Unbelievable! He literally tweeted, "I wish I had a friend like me. I may not be tall and skinny, but I'll settle for being the greatest artist of all time as a consolation." He went on to tell. Ta- he literally tweeted this to the world. I believe in surrounding myself with winners. That's why my room is full of mirrors. <laughs> he literally tweeted that to the world. But you know who would give Kanye a run for his Yeezys was Moses. In Numbers twelve three, it says that Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Who wrote that? Moses. <laughs> and he <laughs> and he wrote it in third person, like athletes and rappers do. Like the books attributed to him. So Moses, though, he didn't feel confident. Remember when the burning bush called him to deliver the Israelites from Egypt? He made 10. Everyone say 10. Excuses as to why God couldn't use him. And every excuse had to do with him not being eloquent enough. So he was so eloquent, he could find 10 different ways to say the same thing synonymously. He didn't feel confident, but if God breathed on the scripture and inspired Moses to write Numbers 12:3, Moses is the most humble man on the face of the earth, who was Moses to disagree? So too, it's not humble to say, no one likes me, everyone hates me, why don't I just go eat worms, hashtag current mood. The most humble thing you could do is confidently submit to what God speaks over your life and say over yourself what God speaks over you. Moses, right, you're the most humble man ever. God, I humbly submit to you. Moses is the most humble man on the face of the earth. The most humble thing you can do is be confident in the identity that God breathes and speaks over your life. So you say, I'm mago day. I'm made in his image, I'm created in his likeness, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, all my days are written in his book, I'm his pearl of grace, price. I am his jewel, Malachi 317. Psalm 8, I'm crowned with glory and honor. The book of Psalms, the earth he has given to the sons of men. Genesis, my destiny is to have dominion over the earth and subdue it. Revelation 3, I'm going to share a seat with Jesus on his throne as I overcome by faith. First John, I am his masterpiece, his poema. I am a child of the most high God. That's who I am. So hope in the Bible is not, gee, golly gosh, maybe it's I am absolutely godfident of who I am in my identity because I'm going to speak over myself what Yahweh breathes over me. And lastly, number three, hope in the Bible is welcome. This is the welcome whereby all the miracles of God come into your life. You might be here today and you're like, Ben, you don't know what equipment I have. Like, I can't fix this thing. Actually, you can. I've talked a lot about the heart and the spirit and ethereal things. Can I talk to you really quick for the next 30 seconds about your mind? This stuff can change your mind. Did you know the Bible says be transformed by the renewing of your mind? For a while, people thought determinism and genetics barred that from happening. You couldn't transform your mind. But actually, you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're in the golden age of uh, neuroscience right now. And what we're finding is that when you talk intentionally to God, the frontal lobe of your brain activates into its highest intellectual capacity, and you boost your brain intelligence by praying. So, praying actually makes you smarter, research now shows us. Who knew? God. Also, MRIs and brain scans have showed us that when you pray to a loving God, your prefrontal cortex develops richer, thicker gray matter, which gives you more creative thinking, greater focus, greater concentration, higher cognition, stronger awareness. And you have greater blood flow to your interior cingulate cortex, which is the part of your brain responsible for empathy, compassion, and warm and fuzzy feelings. And you'll be more sympathetic toward others because it's hard to put someone on your hit list who you put on your prayer list. Conversely, if you pray to a God you believe is angry, research says that you'll have high activity in your amygdala, which is the part of your brain responsible for fear, anger, stress, and high blood pressure. So what neuroplasticity and brain scans and MRIs are showing us, now that we can scan people's brains and see which part activates, we've now found that when you believe God loves you and you meditate on him and pray to him, you will actually transform your mind for the better. Through rote and repetition, this is neuroplasticity, you can change your mind. Take your thoughts captive. As Paul said, meditate Oh, it's lovely, Philippians 4.8. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Research is, not, research is just confirming all these things the Bible was saying thousands of years ago. Your mind can change. So, my friend, I leave you with this. We are going to change the world. We will. Who says we can't? If people tell us we can't, we don't see it as a declaration, we see it as a dare. In fact, the more people tell us something can't be done, the more that like galvanizes us to actually do it. We're going to be the people who turn the mope generation into a hope generation. Why? Because Yahweh is the God of hope. He breathed on the scriptures to give us hope. We have a hope that is knitted to ultimate reality. We have joyful, confident welcome. So we're going to live all our days with confidence that we don't have to tell our God how big our mountain is. We're going to start telling our mountain how big our God is. We're going to relax and sit back because every setback is a setup for a comeback. We're going to walk with, talk to, follow after, lean into, depend upon the God of hope. And not only our minds and our hearts will change be healed, but the world around us will be transformed for the good. Come on. This is big stuff. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you are as near to us and dear to us as our very breath. I pray hope over this group at Calvary Albuquerque today. In Jesus' name, let's all stand and sing. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this special service from Calvary Church. We'd love to know how this message impacted you email us at mystory@calvarynm.church at and just a reminder you can support this ministry with a financial gift at calvarynm.church/give thank you for joining us for this teaching from calvary church